This is the word of the Lord. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And again, Lord, in the strength and power of your Spirit, we do ask that you would help us this morning. Help us to see our strength even in the midst of weakness. And that strength comes not from our strength, but comes from the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be encouraged this morning by your word. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, and for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, we come this morning to a text that is well known, I think, by many Christians, but it is also often forgotten by those same Christians and even underutilized by those same Christians in times of distress and trouble. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, who were being infiltrated by false teachers, posing as apostles of Christ. In the 11th chapter, verse 13, the Apostle Paul identified these men as being false apostles who were armed with a false gospel. If you would turn to your Bibles in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. They had challenged Paul's apostleship. They had challenged his authority, his knowledge, his heritage as a Jew, his heritage or even background as a Pharisee. They even challenged Paul's speaking ability and also, get this, his physical presence. He says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, For they say his letters, Paul speaking about himself and what others are saying about him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. And so Paul does what he does not want to do. He defends himself by giving his credentials. Uh, But Paul does not defend himself or give his credentials in the way that most would do when offering reasons why they are, are qualified for a certain position. You know this, for all of us who have applied for certain positions, who have tried to make our case why we are the man or woman for that job, 
Well, I've earned my bachelor's from this prestigious university. Then I went on and I earned my, my master's or my master's of divinity. And then after presenting my, my dissertation, I, I earned my Ph.D. And therefore, I, I am worthy of this job. Paul does not defend his apostleship in that way. These false apostles, they came to the church of Corinth and they boasted of their heritage as Hebrews. They boasted that they were true descendants of Abraham. They even conjured up false visions, lying revelations that they claimed were from God. What is more is that the church of Corinth, they loved it. They ate it all up. Everything, every, in every way that these false apostles were boasting, the church of Corinth was even more and more amazed. So much so that they looked to Paul and said, now what do you got? Paul sarcastically, he rebukes them. Look at first or Second Corinthians eleven eighteen. He says to them, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. Since we're boasting, it's now my turn. For you, the Corinthians, being so wise, you tolerate foolishness gladly. We're talking about boasting. And since you like boasting, you're even boasting about your boasting. You're even boasting about what you're doing, and you're foolish. You do this gladly, he says, for you tolerate if anyone enslaves you. You like this. If anyone devours you, you like this. If anyone takes advantage of you, you like this. If anyone exalts himself, you love this. Listen to this one. Anyone hits you in the face, you seem to love this. To my shame, I must say that we have been, he says, to my shame, we have been weak by comparison. In comparison to what you've been presenting to me, these false apostles, we are weak compared to them. Paul is preparing again to do what, he's not, what he does not want to do, but it's exactly what the church of Corinth wants him to do. It's exactly what they've been embracing by other false apostles. And they who thought of themselves as being so wise, unwisely are tolerating those who are boasting in themselves. They appear to be a church that tolerates anything. They tolerate enslave, enslaving teachings, false teachings. Uh, they tolerate financially being taken advantage of. They tolerate teachers exalting themselves, even abusing them. The assumption is that the teachers may have smacked them on the head and said, incorrect, fool one, foolish one, and they allowed it to happen. Paul said, unfortunately, he does not have such credentials to offer them. But he does have a resume. And so then he presents it to them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 21. Here is Paul's credentials. Verse 21. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. They are bold, I am a fool, he says. I am just as bold myself. Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I I speak as if insane. I am more so. Why are you more so 
a servant of Christ, Paul. Well, he tells us, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. And I have been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of, my, of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus, he who was blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the Antioch under the Artigas, or Arteus, the king was guarding the city of Damascus. Of the Damascus scene, sorry, in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall so that I escaped his hands. Imagine, why are you qualified to be a messenger of Christ, Paul? Well, I've been in prison for preaching the gospel on more than one occasion. I've been beaten up more times than I can count. Even every time I go out to the sea, I'm almost swallowed up. When I travel along the roads, I am, am inevitably robbed. I'm often hungry. I often go without. And, and one time when I was in Damascus, they were hunting for me so much that I had to be let down out of the city, through a wall, and escape and run for my life. Not exactly the kind of preacher's resume that we would grav gravitate toward, is it? We go for those who have graduated from the best schools, don't we? Please don't go to a church because a pastor has a, a, a degree from a good school. That's ridiculous. We gravitate to ministers who are successful. A successful businessman who have parlayed their business into a nationwide ministry. We are attracted to charisma. We are attracted to power. We are attracted to eloquent speaking and sharp dressing. Men who appear to have it all together. Paul says, I'm none of those things. Most people want you to think better of them than what you tell them. And better of them than what you see in them. Paul says, no one should think more of him than what they see of him. Or what they hear of him. But he's not done. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 through 6. Boasting is necessary. Though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He's saying, there was all my resume, there's all my boasting, but I'm not done. I've got more for you. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, 
which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish to boast, for I do wish to boast. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Brothers and sisters, in reading that verse, our automatic reaction might be to get caught up in the vision. Who's the man and what is the vision? Third heaven? You mean there's a first heaven, a second heaven, and then a third heaven? Who goes to the third heaven? But it's not the point. It is a point, but it's not the point that Paul is trying to make. He says, I know a man that was taken into the third heaven. The man he knows is himself. It was an altogether out-of-body experience. And Paul cannot tell whether he was in his body or out of his body. He knows that God knows it, but he was shown things that he is not allowed to say. He was shown things that are inexpressible. Inexpressible because there are not words to describe what he, what he saw. Inexpressible because he's not allowed to, see, to say what he saw. But inexpressible because it's not the point. It was 14 years ago. Paul had seen something that words cannot describe. It was heaven. And heaven is inexpressible. Shall I proceed to explain to you what heaven is like? I cannot. Why? It is inexpressible. And thank God that it is inexpressible. There are those who have claimed to have died and gone to heaven and returned. And when they come back, they go on tour. They write books. They star in movies. Here is the Apostle Paul who did go to heaven. And he will not even give the slightest hint as to what he saw. But again, it's because it's not the point. It's not the point for the church to say, wow, Paul went to heaven. Let's all follow him. Rather, the point was Paul's weakness. Paul is not emphasizing heaven. He is emphasizing his weakness. How? Because of this vision that he was given, Paul was also given something else. A thorn in his flesh. So that he might never boast in himself. Look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Because of what I have seen. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. To torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you have seen what Paul has done. He has put the ones who boast. He has put them to shame for their boasting. And those who would present themselves as mighty, 
have been exposed for their pride and self-conceit and confidence. You see, most ministers of the gospel, including myself, might refer to the Apostle Paul as the great apostle. Or even as the mighty Apostle Paul. Or even as the master theologian, the Apostle Paul. But the way that Paul describes himself is as the chronic sufferer for Christ. The church has baited him. Tell us your, your strengths, Paul. Give us your resume, Paul. And instead, he has given them all of the reasons why he is weak. Because it is in Paul's weakness that the power of Christ is mightily put on display for all to give honor and praise and glory. To who? Not to Paul. But to Christ. The marks of a true believer, the marks of a true apostle, is that you are willing to share in the sufferings and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says... That he will not boast in the visions and revelations, although he could. No, he couldn't. He wasn't allowed to. Instead, he will boast in weaknesses. He will boast in frailties. And in the fact that in the providence of God, he has become a chronic sufferer for God. You remember how in the previous chapter, he almost gives a liturgy of the sufferings that he has experienced but it would appear that all that Paul and all that Paul has listed in his sufferings, nothing afflicted him, nothing assailed him more than this thorn that was given to him, this thorn in the flesh. Would you notice with me, brothers and sisters, that Paul does not tell us what the thorn is? It's mysterious. We all want to know, right? What's the thorn? Let me say that what the thorn was not. The thorn was not a sin that Paul was wrestling with. That's important. Paul was not struggling or wrestling with sin. Paul was not wrestling with some temptation that was luring him away from Christ. Rather, it was a distressing difficulty that hindered him and his ministry, which often caused him to despair. It could be something physical. We know that Luke was Paul's personal physician, a ministering companion. We know that Paul had bad eyesight. But Paul points out that it was a messenger from Satan. And out of the 175 times that this messenger of Satan is used, well, 174, this is the 175th, it is most often referring to some kind of demonic attack. Not from within Paul, but outside of Paul that was attacking him from the, from the outside. Meaning demon-possessed men. It could have been these false teachers, those who were following him everywhere he went, opposing his ministry, maligning him, abusing him, distracting him everywhere he went. He even mentioned some people by name. We're not allowed to do that in church, are we? He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Hymenaeus and Philetus were men who sought to demean and destroy his ministry. He names them by name. But whether the thorn in the flesh was a person or a thing, it was enough to tempt the Apostle Paul to despair. Because of this thorn, 
Paul finally presents himself as the church appeared to be demanding in light of these super apostles. He presents himself as a beaten man. If strength is what you're demanding, I have none. If pride is what you want, there is none to give. He's been harassed. He's been beaten down. And he's been wrestling with the same thorn for 14 years. Brothers and sisters, in the divine providence of God, we don't know what the thorn was. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we don't know what it is. Why? Because... We don't know what it was. That means that the remedy is applicable to all of us who are tempted to despair. If the thorn that Paul was dealing with was cancer, then all of us who don't have cancer would immediately tune out. I don't have cancer. It doesn't apply to me. But because the thorn is unnamed and because it tempted Paul to despair, we can all look to the remedy with equal hope. Three times the apostle has prayed, take this affliction away. And three times he has received the same answer. And I pray that you also this morning receive the same comfort that Paul received in the midst of his suffering. From the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Brothers and sisters, after that long introduction with God's help. I would like to encourage you this morning with four points regarding strength perfected in weakness. Number one, where is the thorn from? Where is the thorn from? I wonder if you've ever experienced what the Apostle Paul is experiencing. Not wrestling with sin, no. But being attacked from the outside as you are trying to live a life that glorifies God. I wonder if you have ever said with the Apostle Paul, Oh God, I don't understand this suffering that I'm going through. And I don't feel strong enough to live for your glory because of this weakness. Or because of this opposition to my witness. Brothers and sisters, when you make this appeal, have you ever stopped to think about where is this affliction coming from? Uh, we know it may be people. We know it may be physical ailments. We know, that it, we know what it is, but ultimately, who is it coming from? We might immediately say, well, it's from the devil. The devil did it. The devil does everything. And you would be correct. But only partially correct. Did you notice how the apostle weaves in and out, back and forth, between what God has given him and between what he has suffered as a result. He's been called out of sin's darkness and into the light of God's grace. What a marvelous salvation he has in Christ. And yet, as he is called forward in Christ, he is forewarned by Christ that he will suffer much for the name of Christ. He's been given the honor of being an apostle and yet, he's been greeted by death at every single turn. 
He's been given this glorious revelation. He's been taken to the third heaven. And yet, he's been given a thorn that has plagued him for 14 years. There are two things happening here, isn't there? Where's the thorn coming from? All suffering in every Christian has two dimensions. Let me see if I might explain this to some of you. Many of us know twins. My wife has twin brothers that seem to be exactly identical. When I first met them, I thought I would never be able to tell them apart. But as I got to know them, I learned things that distinguish them from one another. Initially, I only saw one person. But as I began to learn them and know them, I began to notice the subtle differences. And now I can tell Brendan from Brian. Paul says a very important thing in verse 7. He says in verse 7, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Two, two dimensions here. And at first, it may be impossible to distinguish between the two. Paul says, a thorn was given to me. That is characteristic Bible language for saying God gave this to me. It is the way in which the Bible and Paul speak about the providence of God. A thorn was given to me. But then he goes on to say that the thorn was given to him, the thorn that was given to him was a, a messenger from Satan. All he sees at first is this thorn, this suffering, but as he investigates it, as he begins to look at it more closely and examine it, he begins to see that there are two contradictory hands at work in his suffering. And they seem to be trying to do two contradictory things. I wonder if you're following me. And I wonder if Paul learned this from Job. Job, as you know, who went through unimaginable suffering. As he was suffering, he was not able to pull out the book of Job and say, oh, oh, oh I see what's happening here. God is testing me. God is removing my sin, of course. And I know that in the end I will receive double for my trouble. Therefore, because he does not have the book of Job, for most of the book of Job, he is crying out to God and saying, what are you doing? Why are you crushing me? In the ninth chapter, Job is railing against God, saying, I can't go on. Have you ever done that? Or said that? I can't go on. And he asks the question and says, if it is not he, then who is it? If it is not God who is doing this, then who is doing this to me? If you've ever read the passage, you might have wanted to scream out to Job. It's the devil, Job. The devil is doing this to you, Job. But then you would forget the first few chapters of the book of Job. That God is allowing this. It is the devil who has been released, as it were, by the, by the sovereign hand of God. But he still holds on to the, to the leash. He doesn't release it to allow the enemy to go wild. Nothing has happened outside of the sovereign rule of God's hand. 
It may be at this point that some may be tempted to, to, to gasp in disbelief and say, that, that, that can't be. You, you mean that the devil is God's devil? That, that he's not outside of God's control? That he is, out, he is not outside of God's control? That he's not just running to and fro without God being able to wrangle him in? No. No, it's not true. And you should be relieved that that's not true. Your hearts should be at ease and should glorify God that that is not true. Why? Because he's not out of control. He's not running outside of the mighty hand of God. God is not trying with all of his might to reel him back in, but he seems to elude God every single time. Not so. Not in the least. Satan can do nothing outside of the loving will of God. Whenever we experience suffering, we can be sure that there are two hands at work. There is the hand that seeks to drive you to despair. The hand that seeks to make you say there is no point. But there is another hand. There is a hand that is in control of the other hand. And that hand has been stretched out in sovereign control, ordering every detail of your life and even the suffering. So that suffering might be used to make you more and more like the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Is that impossible? If it's impossible, then there's no hope for your salvation. For this is exactly what happened for us at the cross. Remember, Jesus said, this is happening to me because this is the time of the power of darkness. And at the same time, he knew that he was going to the cross because the father was sending him to the cross. The most dreadful thing that Satan could have ever done and would ever do would be the very thing that God would use for your salvation and mine. To bring many sons to glory. This is what happened to Joseph, isn't it? This was meant for evil. But God meant it for good. We cannot describe our suffering, can we? In simple sentences. We learn to understand that there is a wicked spirit seeking to bring us to all harm and to all ill. Seeking to devour us. And in the middle of this, God is keeping his sovereign hand of control. Upon our lives. And he is able to work great glory. Even through the most appalling suffering. This is why whenever we say. To sufferers. Oh get over it. We must realize that all of hell. Is being released. To attack their faith. We must not say to those who are suffering. Get over it. No they are being assailed. Say to them, you're being assailed, but God is working all of these things out for good. Number two, the all-sufficient grace of Christ. Second Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power. And it could be said, my power is perfected. In weakness. I wonder if you've ever noticed 
that when the Apostle Paul was buffeted by the messenger of Satan, he prayed. Let me ask you this. Who did he pray to? Who did Paul pray to? We may say he prayed to God. And yes, you would be correct. But specifically, who does Paul pray to? Specifically, Paul addresses his prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. He usually addresses his prayer to the Father, but in this instance, he prays to the Son. This is a remarkable fact. Why? Because Paul asked for the thorn to be removed from him how many times? Three times. And he also says that the power of Christ might rest upon me. The prayer was directed to Christ. And it was the power of Christ which he desired to rest upon him. Is this not fitting? Paul prays to Christ when the temptation from the messenger of Satan comes. Why? Because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who endured the same temptation himself and who himself knows how to comfort those who are being tempted. The prayer offered to Christ is offered in, the, in, in very much the same manner as Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed three times that the cup of God's wrath might be removed from him. Could it be that the apostle was given the same answer as the Lord Jesus Christ when he was not permitted to allow the cup of God's wrath to pass by him, but was given to him a ministering angel? Paul was not allowed to have the thorn removed, but he was strengthened. Strengthened by who? Strengthened by Christ. Strengthened by the words of Christ, that Christ and his grace would strengthen him. To endure it. Christ was being formed in his servant Paul through suffering. I wonder if you heard the song, I asked the Lord that I might grow. What is this? Lord, you are intent to increase my woe. And God says, I answer prayers this way. That I might reveal sin and remove it and make you more like my son. Three times the request is made, take it away. Have you ever been afflicted, brothers and sisters? Have you ever been on your face before God and asked God, cried out to God, please take this away. And rather than the thorn being removed from your life, and especially, specifically from Paul's life, in its place, are words of strength and comfort from the blessed lips of our Savior that are sweet to the ear of the Apostle. And I pray they are sweet to your ear this morning. My grace is sufficient for you. For strength is made perfect in weakness. Sweet words. Comforting words. Why? Brothers and sisters, when was the thorn given to Paul? Fourteen years ago. The apostle does not merely tell us that it, it was the Lord who said to him fourteen years ago, but the tense connects this, the past with the present. 
It was as if he felt the answer was not simply something for the past. But it was something that continued with its consoling power to that very present day. It was something that, although Christ said it 14 years ago, it was said and echoing through the heart and through the mind of the apostle that very moment. As if what Christ said 14 years ago was just said to him a moment ago. It had staying power. It had keeping power. Not just for the past, not just for the present, but also for the future. The words of our Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, have an abiding effect on the apostle. Not merely for the time of his particular trouble, but these words, my grace is sufficient for you. They would be cheering him on all the rest of his days. And they are cheering you on, saint. His grace is sufficient for you. Strengthening him strengthening you in present trials and in future trials to glory in infirmities and to give God all of the glory and praise. It was bread for Paul. It was bread that would feed Paul here today and also as he continued on his pilgrimage all the way to glory. My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. Charles Hodge translate power is perfect or my grace is sufficient for you. He translated my love is enough for you. What a wonderful expression. Think of it. Christ in the midst of our trouble and pain looks down on you and I and gently says. My love is enough for you. Oh God I'm suffering. I am in hardship. I am suffering persecution. Please take it away. And what does he say? What more do you need to ask? My love is enough for you. And what would be our response? Yes, Lord, but if you love me, you would take it away. No. No, no. He has done for us what we could never do. He has taken the stripes that were owed to us. He has carried the cross and been hung upon that very one that we should have hung upon. He's already proven his love. My love is enough for you. And our only response must be, should be, Lord, help it to be. Yes, Lord, indeed it is. If I am poor... If I am severely tried, if I am sick, if I am persecuted, if I am vexed in my mind, your love is enough for me. You will be with me. You will hold me fast. Your love is enough. If I am cast out, if I am forsaken by the world, and even by those who called me friend, cheerfully I will bear it. Because your love sustains me. Because your love is enough for me. What comfort Paul must have received. Is it sufficient for you, Paul? Is it enough for you? Think about it. Is it enough for you that you've been chosen to bear the name of Christ among the nations? That you've been loved before the foundation of the world? That you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? That you've been changed from a blasphemer to a worshiper? And to this day, 
and beyond, you will be kept by immutable love. Yes, your love is enough then. I'm going to ask you something very difficult. And I say the same to myself. Don't ask to be set free from buffeting. Don't ask to be set free from weaknesses, from trials. Why? For these will enable us to better enjoy the favor and love that God has given to us that is more than enough. Christ is our covenant head. And he has given us this promise God has been pleased to give Himself and all of His infinite riches to Christ, your representative, your covenant head. And the Lord Jesus Christ assures you that all that is in Him and Him has been given to you. And it's also sufficient for you. That grace is now sufficient for you. In time of trouble, in time of turmoil, the grace of Christ is now sufficient for your present need. Not your past need, not even your future need, although it will be, but for today. Paul has been beaten with rods. Have you ever been hit with a stick? Some of you kids may remember that growing up. A rod, a steel rod, stoned, shipwrecked. Often in pearls, perils, uh, the grace has been, of Christ has been sufficient for him every single time. There is trouble now, though, Pastor. Yes. And the grace that was sufficient yesterday has not lost its sufficiency today. Past trials, they often seem small when we compare them to present trials, don't they? Therefore, it is often a challenge to see the sufficiency of grace for present afflictions. Dear ones, it's easy to believe in the sufficiency of Christ and his grace for the past and for the future. But to rest in that grace for the immediate necessity That, my dear friends, is true faith. Believers, brothers and sisters, it is now that grace is sufficient. Not just yesterday, and not just tomorrow, but today. But this is a new trouble. Not like the one that I've experienced, then the grace will also be new. It will not be old grace that God offers you. It will be that blessed grace that is new every single morning. And don't think that your trouble is unique just to you. That something strange is happening just to you. That's what Peter would say. Nothing is unique just to you. And if your trial is strange... If your trial is mysterious, then think about this. That grace is also strange. And that grace is also mysterious. Christ 
is sufficient to uphold you, to strengthen you, to comfort you, to make your trouble useful. It's not meaningless. To enable you to triumph over it, to bring you out of it, and sufficient to one day bring you home to glory. Whatever would be good for you, Christ's grace is sufficient to give it to you. And dear child of God, I wish it were possible to put the, the wonderfully all-sufficient grace of Christ into words. But I cannot. I'm glad that I cannot. The grace of Christ is all-sufficient. Little ones, you, you may be wondering, what am, what am I talking about? What is that man talking about? Imagine this. Imagine standing on top of a, the highest mountain. Can you see yourselves? You're standing on top of the highest mountain. And you're saying, I should not breathe too much air in. Or I might suck up all of the air that's in the world. You know what the world might say to you? If we could speak in such a way. The world might say to you, silly one. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. Meaning this, breathe as much as you can breathe. You'll never, ever suck in all of the oxygen and, and atmosphere. Breathe as much as you want. Breathe as much as you need. Fill your lungs until you can feel them no more. Consume it all. Well, let me say to you, little ones, that's the way God's grace is. You can never take away all of the grace of God. It is all sufficient. It is more than enough. And it will be sufficient for you in times of weakness. Don't feel for one second there's not enough grace. It's all gone. Lest the Lord look at you and say, my grace, dear one, my grace is more than sufficient for you. He feeds all the fish of the sea. All the birds of the air. The cattle on a million billion hills. He guides the stars and upholds all things by the power of his word. Surely, he has a storehouse of grace available to you. It is all sufficient. Number three, strength perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Think for a moment of Christ. Christ was strong as to his deity. In him dwelt all strength, for he is mighty God. But how was his strength as mediator made perfect? The strength of Christ to save his people would have never been perfected if he had not taken upon himself the weakness of humanity. Putting on weakness made him strong to redeem us. In us, this is true. Because the power of Jesus can only be perfected in us, his people, when he bears us up. When he keeps us, when he sustains us, when we are in trouble of heart and mind, the power of Christ is perfected in us. It is made real in us when Christ holds us up. 
Have you ever been swimming, little ones, or even older ones? And you went into an area of the water where your feet could not touch the ground. And as you felt that you would sink to your death, all of a sudden someone stronger than you comes and upholds you. And you are still in the waters. You've not been taken out. But you are being upheld by one whose feet touched the ground. Or who was able to swim and sustain much better than you. Who knows the perfection of strength until God allows us to be poor and inadequate Some of you are physically weak. Some of you wrestle with ailments that I could never imagine. And what amazes me more is that you were cheerful. As much as possible, you tried to hide and conceal your pain so that others are not worried about you. You accept those ailments amazingly as being from the hand of God. And you're willing to bear them. For as many years as God would appoint you to bear them. I'm amazed by some of you. I'm not amazed when strong people say strong things. They're strong. That that doesn't surprise me. What amazes me. And what I often marvel at is when weak people say heroic things. To hear those who are dealing with difficulty and sorrow. When we are in the church to hear them comfort others. To hear them say, how might I pray for you when I know that in their own lives they are dealing with unimaginable pain. When if we were in their shoes, we might, might, we might have sunk to despair. What's happening? God's strength is perfectly being revealed in their trials. Are they weak? Yes. But God is upholding them. When you see a man of God brought to poverty and in that poverty never complain. When you hear his character attacked and slandered and yet he continues to stand unmoved like a rock battered by the sea. Loving the church still preaching every Lord's day after Lord's day still. When you see a gracious man persecuted and driven from home and from country for Christ's sake, and yet he still has joy. That, my friends, is strength that is perfected in weakness. Some of you know exactly what I speak of, and some of you have exactly no idea. Walk with Christ a little while and you'll know. Spurgeon said, a grain of experience is worth a pound of observation. And you can only get knowledge of the power of God by experimental acquaintance with your own weakness. You won't get this unless you're along the thorny path, is what I'm saying. And all saints, all true saints must eventually travel through that road of tribulation. Great tribulation brings out great strength. But not Your strength. God's strength. And it's made perfect. Uh, And it achieves its purpose. 
God has not done for us what he means to do in us unless we have felt just how weak we truly are. If you've not said to yourself, I'm weak, then you have not truly understood or known the power of Christ in you. A, a long, as long as a portion of your strength remains, as long as you say, I can do it, I, I've got this, as long as you take no counsel from no one, as long as you say, uh, I don't need your prayers, as long as you say, I can bear myself up, I can pull myself up by my own uh, bootstraps, then you are only but partially sanctified. When our Lord has accomplished in us, what he is aiming to accomplish, the result will be, we will be emptied of ourselves and discover the, the utter vanity of ourselves. This church was calling Paul, brag about yourself, Paul. Tell us about yourself, Paul. Let me tell you all the times that I've been weak. Would you do that? When someone was to ask you today, how can I pray for you, brother? I am weak. No, I'm all good. <laughs> oh, you're all good. Well, give me whatever you're getting because I need some of that. All saints who are ready to go to heaven. They are the ones who feel. To be the least of the least. but yet are clinging on to the cross of Christ. Do you feel commendable? Those who enter heaven, they carry nothing of self with them. And neither will any of us enter there as long as we talk proudly about our achievements. No, we lay down our golden crowns before the glassy sea. Not in me is the song of our lives it should be no strength in me no gift I bring no offering no song it's all in Christ the strength of God is never perfected until our weakness is perfected God uses our weaknesses and uses weaknesses rather than strength so that his power might be revealed how could this weak person be so used by God? It can only be the power of God. Fourth and finally, that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Let's read this finally to the end. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To close, brothers and sisters, Paul puts in the power of Christ opposition to his own power because he is weak Christ is strong if he is not weak 
then he's been able to endure all of these things on his own strength. If it is the strength of, of Paul, then there is no, no room for the strength of Christ. What is the power of Christ? It is that God would, listen to this word, set up a tent or tabernacle in him and shine forth within your soul. It is that Christ may dwell among you, in you, with you. What is the power of Christ? It is the power to suffer, the power to be made nothing, the power to descend to the very depths of weakness for the love of God and for the love of men. Paul did not see the whole purpose of this, but he saw it in part. We must learn what God is like, brothers and sisters. Think about it. What, what, what did Paul see? Let's just, let's just entertain this for a moment. Maybe Paul saw that he would be used in what he was doing in that ministry to minister to a small congregation of believers 2,019 years later in Bakersfield, California. A place that he never even knew existed. Well, that never existed at that time. Who would boast about that? There are men and women who seek to achieve things so that their, main, their names might not ever be forgotten. They go to sporting events and they say, why are you doing this? I'm doing this for legacy. I'm doing this to be the greatest so that my name might not ever be forgotten. And here is Paul possibly being shown the greatness and the vastness of the ministry that Christ would use him for. And he is not saying to the church of Corinth, you will know that my name will live on. But rather he says, I am a worm that the name of Christ might live on. That the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might live on. That, my dear friends, is the power perfected in weakness. That Christ might be exalted. This will all end. This will all come to nothing one day. And the only person that any person who means anything will worship and adore will be Christ. We will not be wearing Jordan on the back of our name shirts. Or Jackson. Or Pacquiao. It will be Christ. And Christ alone. We must learn what God is like. Are you suffering? God is on the field when he is most invisible. I see part of this. I've been given amazing, division, amazing visions. I've been given amazing revelations. And God says, yes, you have, Paul. Now down, down, down to the dust you go. How contrary to the culture is that? The world says this, up in self, up in pride, up in power. And Christ calls us, no, down in your power, down in yourself. Down in your pride. There is only one who wears the crown. 
Some have had thorns. And you've had them for many years. You've longed for them to be taken away. You've said, God, if, if they were taken away, I could serve you more. I could be a better husband to my, my wife, a better wife to my husband, a better father to my kids, a better mother to my children, a better witness at work. If you would just take these thorns away. They won't be taken away. And it won't be until you say, okay, then I embrace it. Because the grace of Christ is sufficient for me. It's enough. It's enough. If it's never taken away in this world, what he has done for me is enough. And his grace is sufficient. We want his strength to be perfect in our strength. But if his strength is made perfect in our strength, then we will never understand what it truly means to serve. We are not strong because we are strong. We are strong because we are weak. We are feeble. And it is Christ who is strong. Because Christ is strong, we are strong. If Christ is not strong, then we are not strong. And if you are strong, then Christ is not strong. Do you see how that doesn't, doesn't work? If you're strong, Christ is not. But when I am weak, Christ is strong. And I am therefore strong. So that people might point to, wow, look how strong Doreen is. Look how strong Dustin is. Look how strong Martina is. Senior and Tony and So they might say, wow, I know how weak he is. I know how weak she is. That can only be but, but the strength of Christ. And he camps down. He tabernacles. He makes his tent upon the weakest of saints. And if that's the case, Paul says, then I am the weakest if that's the case, then I will boast in my weaknesses. If that's the case, then I am the weakest among men. I am the least among the apostles. I am the greatest of sinners. So that Christ might be shown in me. So that the power of Christ might be seen in me. We didn't learn contentment. Even in the most difficult of aches. Because I know even in the midst of them, God has promised that he will be sufficient for me. So he says, and we say, amazingly, when I am weak, then he is strong, and so am I. How does God answer prayer? By crosses. You want your prayer to be answered, here's the cross. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. Deny himself and follow me. How does Christ answer prayers? Well, if we must walk in the way that Christ walked, Christ carried that cross. And so must we. Let the song that we sang today, let it resound in your ears. I ask the Lord that I might grow.
And here is how he answered. Let us stand and let's pray.